And if you would take out your copies of God's Word and turn with me to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. Now, it might look like that we are deviating a little bit from the marriage series that we've been going through these last couple of weeks. But by providential happenstance, what we've ended on the last time we met was that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. As it turns out, this week we're going to have an examination of exactly how Christ loved his church. So we are still in the midst of our marriage series, even during Holy Week. So do listen closely as we take a look at John chapter 11. We're going to be looking at verses 45 through chapter 12, verse 19. So I'm only going to read the first part of our passage today, and we will read as we go along to aid in our concentration and focus. So today, John chapter 11, beginning in verse 45. that context, Lazarus has just been raised from the dead. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. It's always interesting when you find someone who wants to argue against something, slowly begin to lay out the opposite of their idea. I remember watching many years ago a scientist explaining how the biology of a giraffe's lung system worked. It was fascinating. It works like a piston in an engine so that when the giraffe is running, that forward momentum pushes the lungs out so they can get all the air out, but then on the, the back swing, all the organs are pulled forward like an accordion and expand the lungs to make it easier for the giraffe to breathe, even while at a full sprint. And as the scientist was explaining to all this, he had looked at the camera and said, it is all so beautifully designed. And then he paused and said, evolved, and chuckled at himself as he realized what he had just said. He points out this tremendous design that clearly all these parts are connected to one another, but yet he has to stay committed to what he originally thinks. And what we see is a similar thing happen here with the Pharisees and the rest of Jesus' enemies. What struck me this time is we, because this is our fourth Palm Sunday together, as we're looking at this story with the help of one scholar named D.A. Carson. How many 
theological climaxes in this story are told by people who don't know what they're saying. We have the high priest, Jesus' enemy, the guy who's calling for the death of Jesus, who's going to lay out the theological climax that Jesus is going to sacrifice himself for the nation and for the world, incidentally. And what we'll see at the end of our time together in John 12, 19, when the Pharisees are saying the whole world is going after Jesus, and that this in itself is pointing to the future in which even the nations beyond the house of Israel will begin to see Jesus. And even in the middle, even Jesus' friends, as Mary prepares Jesus' body for burial unknowingly, that she will proclaim this message. What I'm hoping that you hear today from this passage is the gospel, that Jesus has died for you. What I'm hoping is a little bit different is that you will hear it even from Jesus' own enemies and find that your salvation was secured by no accident, but that Jesus was actively working for your salvation this entire time. We're going to look at our two points today, as you can see in the outline that's on the back of the prayer guide tucked into your bulletin there. The first truth we're going to see is that Jesus has taken your place in his death. Jesus has taken your place in his death. And two, that he offers salvation to the world freely. That's what we're going to look at today. In short, the gospel. Let's examine it closely. So way before Jesus is about to enter Jerusalem triumphantly, as we saw prophesied in Zechariah 9, hundreds of years before it happens, there is a meeting of religious leaders Yes, it's terrifying, isn't it? A meeting of the religious leaders to figure out how they can destroy Jesus. Now, what has Jesus done now that has gotten these guys so riled up to get together to figure out a plot of how to destroy Jesus? It's worth noting they're gathering together the council. This is be the fancy term for them was the Sanhedrin. A gathering together of both the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Sadducees were members of the priestly class, the pastors, professors, the priests of their day. And the Pharisees were the lay people, but who took God's word very seriously. These were folks that were very influential, but they were a minority. They believed in the resurrection. The Sadducees didn't. So actually, as you would see in Acts 23, this is a group that tended to be at odds with one another. They had different goals, different theological commitments. But what was it that could bring even these two enemies together into this alliance? Well, it turns out Jesus has done something rather radical. He raised someone from the dead. And Lazarus was dead dead. Dead for four days. Jesus wasn't some medicine shaman rolling into town with a new medication. But he was master over life and death. So the Pharisees are a little concerned, as are the Sadducees. But why is this concerning to them? Why is it so scary that there's somebody who can control life and death? Who can raise people from the dead? Isn't that the ultimate tool? The ultimate hope for everything? Well, they thought they had a different problem. They thought their problem was political. 
And this makes politics very, very complicated. Why? Well, you can listen to their logic as they go through here in verse 47. They start, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. What are they getting at here? The expectation of the Messiah was at an absolute fever pitch at this time. In fact, right around the time of Jesus, there were no less than 10 Messianic movements. People that had claimed to be the Christ to lead on some sort of revolt and revolution. You probably weren't aware of that because all those Messianic movements died along with their founder. Something different about this one, though. We'll get to that next week. But here, what they were afraid of is Jesus is different than the others. I mean, it's one thing to be able to feed 5,000 people. It's one thing to be able to heal people from diseases. But it's quite different to be able to raise someone from the dead. That's new. So they're afraid of what the people are going to do. If the people say that he's the Messiah and they really believe this, all Jesus has to do is say, let's go get Rome. And he'll have a whole following ready to go. Even if they die, Jesus can raise them. It's the ultimate army. In fact, Jesus might not even be able to say anything. They might just take it upon themselves to revolt against the Romans. But note how little trust they have in Jesus at that moment. If we go up against Rome, we'll fail. And Rome will come and crush us. And take away our place, which commentators believe to be the temple. They'll take that away. And they'll take away our nation. We'll lose who we are. Now, it's fairly easy to come down really hard on the Sadducees and Pharisees, because we know how the story ends. These are the bad guys. But if I might take us just a moment to try to understand where they're coming from, this is not the first time they've been kicked out of their land before. This is not the first time that they've watched other people begin to worship someone or something else and get kicked out of their land. They're concerned about this. They don't want to be exiles again. But what's their problem? They're not looking to God. They're looking to Rome for their security. Or at least the appeasement of Rome for their security. It's easy to get locked in to a way of thinking. And let that govern how you view everything else. To the point where you can't even see. I mean, you would think, like, guys, don't you have the Bible? Weren't you reading this? The Pharisees were required to memorize the Bible. How is it that you can't see this is coming? They're locked in. Politics is savior. It's easy to do. This happened to myself one time. I remember I was, a, I was probably 12 at the time. I had a very, very bad sickness that took me, and I had to take some medicine. It made me drowsy, and I fell asleep at noon and woke up at 6 p.m. that night and was utterly convinced it was 6 a.m. the next morning. There was nothing my mother could do to convince me otherwise. Even though the moon was coming up, I still denied that it was, in fact, that same day. It's easy to get stuck into this. But when you're just a 12-year-old on cold medicine, there's only so much damage you can do. But here, what happens when we get locked into a way of thinking, when we don't expose our mind to the scriptures, we make assumptions and bring them to the Bible, here's what happens. 
Caiaphas finds the solution to this problem, this errant Messiah. And he says, you know nothing at all. And instead, he tells them, what we need to do is sacrifice this Jesus. It's the original trolley problem. What's more important, one guy's life or the fate of the nation? Well, we'll take out Jesus. Make sure that he's not in the way anymore. Because it's better if one person dies to save the nation. Now, Caiaphas doesn't realize he's proclaiming the gospel in that moment. But he is. And is speaking through even his enemies to bring about the exact work that Jesus has done. Jesus was not some teacher that pushed it too far. He's not some political revolutionary with some new ideas that people didn't like. He was the Lamb of God coming to bring salvation to his people. And even out of the mouths of his own enemies, he proclaims it. So here in verse 53, they make plans to put him to death. Let's read a little bit more and see what this plan is going to involve. Beginning in verse 54. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with his disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. And many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he'll not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. What's going on here? Now the Sadducees and the Pharisees are employing the rest of the people to do their bidding. Find us this Jesus so that we can arrest him. Note, they keep their plans for Jesus pretty close to their chest. But they just want him to be arrested and to be stopped. Now you might think, if we were to back up to verse 54, it's like, is Jesus being afraid? Why is he staying away from Jerusalem? Well, for that, one commentator's point out that Jesus is making a theological point with this, in that Jesus is going to decide when he is going to go to the cross. Jesus decides when he's going to turn himself over to people's hands. It's not going to be he was carelessly walking the sidewalk and someone snatched him, but that there is going to be a triumphal entry. Jesus is going to be in front of the religious leaders, no doubt. In fact, he's going to make quite an appearance here in just a few verses. But it's going to be he is going to make this. This is no accident. It's all according to plan. So here Jesus goes. Not only is he going to speak the gospel through his enemies, but he's also going to speak it through his friends. As we see here at the beginning of John chapter 12. Here he reads, Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. 
Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Let's set this scene here. So now Jesus is with his friends. He's in Bethany. And he is with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And everybody is back in their accustomed roles. Martha is once again serving dinner. And Mary is once again sitting at Jesus' feet in worship. But what is Mary doing? What is this that she is sacrificing? Here he takes a pound of expensive ointment. So Judas points out, has already calculated its value, to be at 300 denarii, which is basically 300 days wage. He wouldn't work on Sabbath and other holy days, so this was a year's worth of wage for a day laborer. So if you can imagine a pound of perfume that costs maybe $30,000 that she's going to break open and pour out for Jesus. Commentators point out that it was not unexpected at that time to spend lavish funds for funerals, particularly with spices and perfumes, because this was the way to cover up the decaying smell of the body. It would be a way of honoring the person and covering that up. And here is what Mary's doing. Now, the text doesn't say whether or not Mary is aware of this. That she has consciously made this decision. All right, Jesus is about to go to the cross. I can see this happening. I'm going to signify this burial that's coming by performing this perfume. She probably doesn't have that deep of a grasp of it at this point. Because most of the disciples didn't. In fact, none of the disciples did. As we'll see here in a moment. But nonetheless, here's what she's doing in this lavish display of honor and devotion to him. To Jesus. This was something that was costly, but it was something that she wanted to do while Jesus was still alive, an act of worship to him. But yet it proclaims something else, didn't it? It proclaims that there's going to be a burial. Not only is Jesus going to die, but he is going to be buried. Can you feel the visceralness of this sacrifice? Jesus is not just going to a cross to suffer for a little while and then God's going to pull him off of the cross and go, whew, well, that was hard, but at least I didn't die. No, Jesus experienced everything, not just pain. He experiences death. He experiences burial. Jesus has the entire human experience from birth to death to burial. This means Jesus follows you everywhere. If you're afraid of death, don't worry. Jesus has been there for you. That's what this is proclaiming. Does Mary have all of this in her mind when she does that? No, probably not. But nonetheless, that is what this is proclaiming. But yet we'll always find those that will find more economic means for devotion to God. There was... 
One commentator, F.F. Bruce, had pointed it this way. He says, devotion cannot be measured in terms of pounds and pence, although some people think it can. Some people think that you can measure out your devotion to God based on how much money you have given. And for Mary, it wasn't about money, clearly. It was 30 grand she was pouring out. For her, it was about the love of her Savior and wanting to do something lavish for him. It's not just money. It's your heart. Of course, we see as Judas, as he's continued to be painted as he's the one who is going to betray him. The only reason why he's saying this about the poor is because he wants that money for himself. He wants to see what he can get out of Jesus, not what he can do for Jesus. Can you see the contrast between Mary and Judas here? It's what he wants to do. But it also points out here that no one, at least of the disciples, saw Judas coming. They thought he was so trustworthy, they trusted him with the money. He even stole a lot and somehow managed to never be questioned by it. This is the Lord's working all the way. And then as we get down, we'll just briefly mention here, note the increasing desperateness of the religious leaders. Well, if we kill Jesus, well, that's one step, but we still have the problem of Lazarus being raised from the dead here. And in fact, one commentator pointed out that the Sadducees, who didn't believe in the resurrection, life after death, See, Lazarus is quite an embarrassment to their theology, isn't it? There's no resurrection. What about that guy? He was raised from the dead, and Jesus did it. So for as long as Lazarus is alive, he remains a living testimony of Jesus' work. I want to be like that. Jesus is real. Just look at how he's changed Mark. We should all be like that. But now we continue into the triumphal entry, bolstered, no doubt, by all the disciples with tremendous vigor because of this sign that he's just performed. As we get into verse 12, it says, The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. What's happening here in this triumphal entry? It might seem weird to us as we see the palm branches being broken out. Even those that are intimately familiar with the festivals of the Old Testament might find this a little confusing. Palm branches have no place in the Passover. There's one other feast where they might show up but as a feast of sheaves, but not here at Passover. What's going on? Well, this was a time, this was a sign of 
Jewish national pride. There were some successful revolts that were led in the past, and this palm branch became a symbol of those successful revolts and revolutions. And in fact, as uh, historians have found, they've seen Jewish coins that have been stamped with palm branches commemorating victory. Unfortunately, the Romans had also used that sign when they would reconquer the Jews. They would put this palm branch sign on their coins. So this was quite a symbol of Jewish national political identity. So when they see Jesus coming, they've got Zechariah 9 all in their heads. And Psalm 118, that's what they're chanting. As they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. They think they know who they're seeing. Here's the long-expected prophet. Here's the son of David. He's going to come. He's going to set this all up. We're finally going to have our national identity back. We're not going to be oppressed by the Romans anymore. You can imagine them just going over all the things that are going to change about their life. But what does Jesus do? Well, he does something that to us doesn't sound all that unexpected because we're familiar with this story. So we don't understand the subversion of their expectations he's doing. If you're going to be a Messiah, if you're going to be the next king, if you want to announce this, the way you do this is you get on a war horse. You get on a mighty steed. You find the nearest Clydesdale. And you get on it. Project that power and height. Take the throne for what is yours. That's what they would expect of a messianic leader. That's what they would expect of a conquering king. But instead what he does is he gets on a donkey. This is the animal that a king gets on when he's coming in peace, not revolution. So this would, as one commentator points out, doesn't deny the fact that he is, in fact, the rightful king of Israel. But it does alter the expectations of how this throne is going to be ascended. It's not going to be through a violent overthrow. It's not going to be through an overthrow at all. There's a different throne that Jesus is going to ascend. And it comes by being on this donkey. So now let's check in with our old friends, the Pharisees. What's their reaction to all of this? Remember, they have tried to employ this crowd to be the ones that will tell on Jesus so this way they can arrest him privately. And instead, what's happening here is the crowd that was with him when he called out Lazarus continues to bear witness that he's the king of Israel. What a fail. Total backfire of the plan. The very people that were supposed to be helping you are the ones who are proclaiming that Jesus is the king. You don't want to do that when there is a Roman oppressor. You don't want to be having a group, bunch of people at the capital city saying, we've got a new king. That's a bad political move. That'll get you canceled on ancient Twitter. So what do the Pharisees do? You can almost hear the frustration. The Raising of their arms and flapping it to their sides and saying, you see, you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Obviously, in this moment, they're speaking with hyperbole 
They don't really think it's the whole world right now. It's just the people of the Jews. But there's an interesting verse here that's just outside of our study area, but we're going to peek at it anyway. In verse 20, it says, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Greeks aren't Jews. These are Gentiles. Might be part of the reason why they don't go up to Jesus themselves. But instead come up to one of the disciples. And in fact come up to Philip and Andrew ultimately. And it might be because while Philip and Andrew were both Jewish, they had Greek names. So they might have thought, oh, okay, well that's Philip. We might be able to have our connection to Jesus that way. As they go along. Now, as we were to continue on through this passage, we would see this meeting is not granted to them immediately. And instead, the answer that Jesus gives to break it down into what he would be ultimately saying is, I've got to go to the cross first. That's how we're going to open the way to the rest of the world. So the Pharisees say more than they think. And they say that the world has gone after him. Can you imagine... If the Pharisees had access to some sort of time machine and be able to, in this moment, look forward and see us here? You're telling me that, the, that this Jesus' fame is going to go all the way to a new piece of land we've never even heard of before? That it's going to go literally to the entire world? Can you imagine further? If they were given a glimpse into what heaven is going to be like at the end? When every nation, tribe, and tongue is going to be standing around the throne worshiping this Savior? That's what's going to happen. That's what he's proclaiming. Now, of course, the disciples didn't get it. You'll see even when Jesus is ascending into heaven, the disciples still ask, All right, is now the time when the kingdom's coming? Is now the point you're going to toss out the Romans? All the way to the end, they weren't realizing this. Shows how much the gift of the Holy Spirit it is. Be able to open up the words of Scripture to you. And when they see the whole picture, they'll see, oh, that's what Jesus was doing. You can see how everything gets reinterpreted as you look back. As commentators have pointed out here, when, they, when, when John is writing about Judas, notice every time they men, make, make some mention about how Judas is the betrayer. Imagine how differently John looks at Judas now having seen what he did versus where it was before he knew. And, you know, I think we're going to get a little bit of taste of that as well. One day we're going to get to look back and say, oh... That's what Jesus was doing. I didn't understand it then. That seems to be kind of a hallmark of being a disciple of Jesus. I didn't get it then. But I get it now. And how much sweeter that's going to be for us. We know more than Mary and the disciples did. Because we've gotten to see the full story played out for us in just a few pages. We've gotten to see the gospel message. And I hope you've seen it more than just with an intellectual understanding. 
but that you've seen that Jesus, in fact, loves you. Jesus didn't get caught up in some sort of a sacrifice where they just kind of rolled along with what happened to him. It's like, well, I guess we're going through with this. Now, every single step of this, every painful step of this is ordained by Christ and done out of love for you so that you can go after him. This is what he promises to you. And then we, of course, we still, the story, though we get to see all of this here, there's one little bit that's not quite done yet. I hinted at it back when we read it our Old Testament passage. One day Jesus comes back. You can see those details in Revelation. Where he is on a horse. Where he is on a mighty steed. When Jesus will return to overthrow not just governments, but our sin. Death itself will die. And he will rule in total peace and renewal. That's what we have to look forward to. There's still more gospel to be seen. So we have a lot to look forward to. So in the meantime, let's proclaim not as Jesus' enemies, but as Jesus' friends this gospel, that Jesus has died for you and more so was raised for you so that if you put your trust in him, Christ will transform you. At that moment, when you trust in Christ, you will begin to turn from your sin as well. We'll find new life in Christ. He promises the beginning of transformation even now. The redeeming of creation begins in your heart. And in, pro- and in proclaiming this glorious news, we get to be heralds of this coming kingdom. I pray that that encourages you. And that as you think through the rest of this week, as we contemplate the sufferings of Christ, as we rightly should, We must never forget that this always ends in victory for Jesus. It's a victory that we can proclaim. This is a wonderful time if you have somebody in your mind that says, I would like to invite them to church or I wish they could hear the gospel. This is a great week to do that. This is a great week to walk them through this passage and say, see how even Jesus' enemies got it? Sort of. That one day you can have it too. I pray that this would be the reality for you. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we thank you for this time in which we can look at your word and see how you have won it all. That you love us deeply as a father. And that you rule and protect us completely as a king. Lord, we pray that we would find deeper and deeper love from you that we can return to you. I find that the pray that this would be motivating to us to seek you, to love you, and to obey what you have to tell us. But I ask if there's anybody here who doesn't know you, that you would bring them to faith, that this week, that they would be united to you and see what you would have for them. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.